Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we consider your wonder-working power, we are humbled to the dust. You have done unmeasurably great things, both in history and in full view of our lives. And God, as we consider your great work and the redemption that you have planned and brought about through your Son, Jesus, we praise your name. We want to know more. We want to see more. We want to understand more. And so we pray for your help this morning as we gather around your word to do just that, to, to receive your help and your assistance, to see your glory in your divine word. We come to you from many different places, from broken places, from glad and rejoicing places, from places of doubt and places we're recovering from the, the sins that we have been plagued by this week. And so, Father, we pray for your hope and your illumination now. Do what only you can do, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. It is easy to trust the capability of something uh, on paper more so than in real life experience. You can know that the walking bridge will hold. You can see all the charts and all the engineering around it. You can know all of those things. And yet it's different when you go out to the edge of the the bridge and you get ready to take the first step out onto that bridge while the wind is blowing and you look down and there's hundreds of feet below. It's different trusting the capability of something in experience versus on paper. It's easy to affirm the power and the reach of Jesus' ministry. It's, it's an undeniable historical fact, right? If you look at untold billions of people who have been influenced by this Messiah, by this Savior who's come in human flesh. But to trust Him when you're talking to the person who doesn't know Christ and to, to bring up spiritual things is a different thing. And to trust Him in the way that you pray for other people, and to not pray minimal prayers, but to pray faith-filled prayers, and to trust Him in an active and in a live way, is a different kind of thing. How far does the ministry of Jesus reach? How capable is it to transform? Is the question for us this morning. There is disagreement about the scope of this impact, right? Some presume that Christian and Christianity is a means of life enhancement, that it's merely a way to shape how we interact politically or within our homes or, or how we parent. Some presume that the gospel only reaches certain zip codes, right, or certain subgroups or certain people. How far does the ministry of Jesus reach? Who does it reach? How does it transform? 
How deep does it go? For some here, the ministry of Jesus might feel out of reach. Maybe you've come to church a lot and you have still struggled to understand the basic terminology that everyone else uses that you don't quite get yet. You don't know where Habakkuk is in the Bible. It's foreign to you and it feels like the gospel is, is there's natives around you, but you're a foreigner. You're close, but you're still just out of reach. Others of us here long to see the power of the gospel displayed in our life. You want to know it in a different and a deeper way than you currently do. You want to see that sin, the gospel has the power to break sin, actual sin, your sin. How far does the ministry of Jesus reach? How far does it go and how deep does it go? What is the boundary in your mind of the reach of Jesus' ministry? What is the extent that which he can transform a person? And I, 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 in asking that, I mean survey your actions and the way that you live your life. The decisions you make. The people you choose to share the gospel with or not to share the gospel with. The way that we trust him to transform us or the way that we pray to him. All those are good indications of where those gospel perimeters are. And I think this morning Luke invites us to expand the boundaries of our understanding of the power of the ministry of Jesus. Right after the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus has two interactions with a soldier and a widow. And these interactions will demonstrate the extent and the depth of Jesus' ministry and power. A quick road map before we turn there. Our text for this morning is Luke 7, but we're actually going to start in Luke 4. And that's because the first stop on our, our journey is the first soldier and widow. It's actually not in Luke 7. We hear about it first in Luke 4, and that's, that's an important uh, detail to not miss. But then we're going to see the distance of Jesus' reach in this interaction with the Roman centurion in Luke 7, 1 through 10. And then we'll see the depth of his reach in Luke 7, 11 through 17, in this interaction that he has with the widow. And we'll talk about some implications after that. So before we go to chapter 7, we need to spend a few minutes remembering something from earlier on. You remember, Luke is a very thoughtful writer. He's told us. He's arranged this gospel strategically and in specific ways. And in chapter 7 is the illustration of something he points to earlier in chapter 4. If you recall, in chapter 4, Jesus is tempted right in the desert... And he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And if you remember, when we looked at his ministry in Nazareth, his hometown, he announces in this sermon on Isaiah 61 that he himself is the Spirit-anointed Messiah and Deliverer. In verse 24 of Luke 4, he discusses how they're going to reject him because he's the hometown kid. And that's kind of how it goes with prophets. But then he goes on in verses 25 through 27, and he gives two examples of how God sent the prophet Elijah and Elisha beyond the rebellious people of Israel to minister to Gentiles, people outside of Israel. You remember that? And they got really fired up about it. The first example that he gives is from 1 Kings 17, when Elijah is sent to a Gentile widow in Sidon. 
And the prophet finds her gathering wood to prepare her last meal for her and her son because they're out of resources. They're on the brink of death. And you remember, God provides this unending supply of flour and oil for her family and for Elijah. Do you remember that? But then her son tragically dies. Elijah pleads with the Lord and actually revives the boy. In this touching scene, Elijah picks up this child and brings him down the stairs to this grateful mother who is also a widow. And Jesus refers to that scene in Luke 4, 25-26, if you remember that. And then he also, in verse 27, refers to 2 Kings 5, where this Gentile commander named from Syria, do you remember the guy named Naaman? who overhears a servant girl from from the Jews say that there's prophets in Israel who would be able to cure his leprosy. And so Naaman, like you and I might, like packs up a bunch of wealthy stuff and treasure to go and pay for this healing uh, business uh, of Israel. He ends up at the front door of Elisha, and Elisha just sends messengers telling him to go wash in the Jordan seven times. And in that scene, Naaman was kind of fried that Elisha wouldn't come out and talk to him directly. He's just like, what gives? I came all the way out here. I've got all this stuff to give you. And all you're going to tell me is to go dip in a nasty river. There's a lot better rivers I could do this in. What are you, what are you talking about? Well, people talk him into it. And sure enough, after he dips in the Jordan, he's healed. And the point that Jesus is making in Nazareth is that God sends these prophets not to Israel's widows or lepers, but to Gentiles outside of Israel. His point is almost too clear. God is willing to work with those outside of Israel, and so is Jesus. That's his point, and that's what we see in the Gospel of Luke, right? He's eating with tax collectors and sinners, and it angers the people of Nazareth. It's going to anger the Jewish leaders, So with that backdrop in mind, that's really the full first soldier and widow that we meet. Now we meet a soldier and a widow in chapter 7, not by accident. Look with me in Luke chapter 7. We'll read the first 10 verses. It says this, After he finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel... Have I found such faith? And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. 
the setting is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus has just thrown the gauntlet down. He's talked about how His Word, the storm has come, and it's ruined one house that was built on sand, and it's proven this, the durability of the other house, the people who believed and obeyed His Word. And then it says He goes to Capernaum, which is a place of dynamic ministry we see throughout His Gospel. And we find the centurion who has a servant who is at the brink of death. There is an urgent need. And it's interesting, we begin to see the character of the centurion and that he values this servant. And it appears to be more than just, I'm losing my property, I'm losing my investment. It says that he highly valued him or honored him, esteemed him, you could say. We learn a lot about this centurion just in his actions and we know that centurions are you know, in charge of a hundred soldiers uh, within the Roman army. They were often wealthy and powerful and influential people. He knew how to be led and he knew how to lead. And we discover, oddly enough, that he loves the Jewish people, and this not just in a uh, superficial way, but in a way that has expressed itself in generosity. This centurion has built a synagogue for the Jews. And this is kind of odd to hear this Jewish contingent talking positively about this Rome. Normally the Jews and the Romans didn't get along that well. They were not busy complimenting one another, you could say. But you can tell the pleas from this Jewish contingent, it says, is earnest. When they came to Jesus in verse 4, they pleaded with him earnestly. They meant what they said. This Gentile, this Roman centurion, sends the Jewish officials to get Jesus' attention. He feels like an outsider, undoubtedly. And so he's doing what he can to get the attention of this Messiah. He knew he wouldn't have had his ear, typically. And so he wants to make sure that his servant's need is met. And notice the sales pitch from the Jewish contingent. He is worthy to have you do this for him. See, the desperation of the servant circumstances are what driving his you know, move to send the group. But the group's tactic is to focus on the centurion's worth, not the servant's need. And this kind of runs against kingdom thinking, right? The, I mean, they're basically saying, we know you normally you know, blow this Gentile off as a Jewish rabbi would, but, but hear us out. He loves us. He loves our people. He's donated a lot of money for this synagogue. We know he's an outsider, but he's, he acts a lot like an insider. They're trying to secure favor with Jesus by putting the centurion in proximity with the nation as if God were only willing to bless insiders. Do you see their way of thinking? Now, their motives could be good in this, right? They're merely trying to help. They could be trying to secure future favors. We're not sure. But their thinking doesn't exactly align with the kingdom, or we find out the centurion's thinking. But it does say in our text, Jesus decides to go with them. So the plan worked, it seems. And Jesus was on the way. And this is also surprising because Jews didn't often intermix with Gentile people. They didn't go into their homes and they'd be defiled by doing that. Do you remember when Peter was later sent after some convincing from God uh, to the house of a, 
another Roman soldier, Cornelius. And Peter says to him, you know, so many years later in Acts 10.28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This is way after Pentecost, way after he had watched Jesus meet with tax collectors and sinners for years and years, that Peter is finally realizing what's going on. But Jesus is on the way, seemingly undeterred by this idea of being defiled. But then this other group approaches him. He's just about there. In verse 6, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him. Now this is a different group. This is a group who are far more reflective of the centurion's heart, it would seem. They have their script ready, right? And so they say to him, Lord, addressing him respectfully. They show deference to him. Do not trouble yourself. Don't, don't go out of your way. Which is so weird to hear from this Roman official who is so used to commanding people and doing whatever he wants. To defer humbly to Jesus in this way and being worried about inconveniencing a Jewish rabbi? That's an odd thing for a man of his position to say. But then he reveals why through this message. He says he's not worthy to have Jesus come under his roof. It sounds a lot like John the Baptist, doesn't it? Unworthy to even untie his sandals. And apparently those Jewish officials didn't have it right because he kind of sounds like his message is the opposite. Saying, I'm actually not worthy of this. He says, I did not presume to come to you. Now, it's possible that the centurion is worried about ritual purity, but his posture of humility seems to be the thing that's driving this. Right? He is aware of Jesus' greatness. And so he, like Peter earlier in chapter 5, depart from me from my I'm a sinful man kind of reaction, but he still needs help for his servant. And so he sends messengers to try to balance these two things. Do you remember how Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Plain when he says, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. It comes down to hearing and obeying Jesus' word. And after his humble statement, the Gentile outsider says, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Jesus, I recognize your authority And I know that distance is not a problem. You're the type that can do this remotely, right? Just say the word. It's interesting if you read the account of Naaman back in the Old Testament, that Syrian commander who had leprosy. He complains because Elisha didn't bother coming to him. He says in 2 Kings 5.11, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord as God and wave his hand over the place and have this big show, this big thing. Not the centurion. He doesn't come with presumption or payment for Jesus' miracle services. He comes in the essence of faith. Just give the order. Just say the word and it will be done. In verse 8, he references his experience as a soldier. 
It's like, I know how this works. I know how authority works. I grew up through the ranks. I know when I'm told to go, I go. And now as a leader, I know when I tell people, you come or you do this, they're going to do it. And it doesn't matter how far away I am from them. I could send an emissary hundreds of miles and say, the general says to do this, and he better do it. I know how this works, Jesus. So just say the word. It's extraordinary. It's like out of nowhere, this incredible example of faith drops into the scene in Luke. He recognizes Jesus' authority over sickness and death. He sees things and knows things that people who are walking with Jesus every day don't see and don't know. And we know that the big point of this text we find in verses 9 and 10, right? It's Jesus' reaction. When, when you're in a narrative and you're reading and things kind of start to slow down and details start getting described, that's the author's way of saying, this is the point. <laughs> like, pay attention. And so when Luke says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd, it's like everything's in slow-mo now because this is the big reveal. This is the point. Jesus saying, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. It sounds a little bit like his sermon at Nazareth, doesn't it? We're outside of Israel at this point. Jesus only marvels, from what I can tell, two times in the New Testament. One is at unbelief, and the other is here, at the belief of this Gentile. And there's a reason for that. And he's standing out as this incredible example. The friends return home and, of course, find the servant well. Jesus heals remotely. And ironically, in Luke, we never know this centurion's name. And he and Jesus never meet face to face in Luke's Gospel. And yet here he stands as the premier example of faith. How far does the ministry of Jesus reach? Well, here we have a demonstration of a pattern from the Old Testament that Jesus pointed to at Nazareth. And that's that God is moving beyond the boundaries of Israel. That He's reaching people far and wide. And this outsider is the premier template for what it means to be a humble follower and to have real faith. It's so weird when you think about it. You think about examples of faith. There's Abraham. And standing next to Abraham is this Roman centurion. It's because the ministry of Messiah reaches the presumptuous Naamans, it reaches the humble centurions, it does all these things because it's by faith that the ministry of Jesus reaches. We'll come back to that and talk about the implications of that. But let's look and see this interaction with the widow in verses 11 through 17. Luke is continuing to make this point, picking up from the sermon in Nazareth. He says in verse 11, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. 
Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. We go from this dramatic faith to this very pitiful scene. Now we have the widow portion of the sermon in Nazareth, and it's in Nain. Jesus is leading his disciples. He's got a big crowd with him, and they meet a big crowd leaving the city at the gate. It's a group of mourners. In that culture, burials often happen the same day that a person died. The dead body was typically wrapped in cloth and placed on a board that was carried out to the place of burial. It was a quick process, so it means the, the impact of grief was stark on this day. Anyone who would contact a dead body would be considered unclean for a week, according to Jewish law in Numbers 19. And it's an even more sobering scene when you realize that the man who died is the only son of a widow from the town. This not only gets the reader's pity because a son has died, but it also meant that this woman who has already lost her husband was on her own. Her security net was gone. And she was doubly burdened by the intense grief of this reversing of the natural order of things where she has to bury a son and she's got to worry about her future at the same time. And enter Jesus. It says in verse 13 that Jesus had compassion on her. He sympathized. He forecasted her future. He knew her insecurity and pain. He was moved with pity, and so he intervened and said this very seemingly insensitive thing, which is, do not weep. He said this because he knew her circumstances were about to change, that he would interrupt her grief. In verses 14 and 15, he does intervene, and he stops this this procession through a controversial action, which is he goes up and does the unthinkable thing. The rabbi touches the board that is carrying this dead body, defiling himself, according to Jewish law. This is probably why the people stopped. People probably gasped. What is this holy man doing touching the coffin? Everybody's confused. And to add even more confusion, Jesus breaks the silence by telling a dead person to rise. And like a general ordering his troops, death obeys the voice of Jesus. Hear the irony in the text. The dead man hears. The dead man sits up. The dead man starts a conversation. The reason why Luke is writing that way to point out that dead people don't typically do these things. And notice the tenderness of Jesus very much like the tenderness of Elijah in the scene with the widow. It says Jesus gave him to his mother in verse 15. It's easy to read verses like this and forget 
what's really going on in this scene. But think about being a part of that town that day, where this shocking news of the death of a younger person spreads through the town. The family gathers to do the gruesome preparations. It takes a lot of people just to help the mother get a hold of herself. And time, which is so insensitive to grief, it ticks on and the body, we've got to do something with the body. So the neighbors chip in. They help and prep. The mourners are called in. The unbelievable starts to become believable. He's really gone. And transport for the body is prepared. They're on the way to bury the boy. And then a rabbi you've never seen defiles himself and throws out an insensitive comment to the widow and you probably roll your eyes and think, just let the woman grieve, for goodness sakes. And then he speaks and the dead boy moves and wriggles a little bit and sits up on the board. And it all seems like a dream until the boy starts actually saying things. Like from his own voice. And the crowd doesn't know what to do and there's this kind of this, well, we should probably unwrap the guy. Like a few people maybe start helping with that. The mother's tears of devastation turn to joy. And pretty soon, what do you do at a funeral procession like that? Right? There's kind of this hesitant celebration now. You've gone from a funeral to rejoicing. And everyone's gripped with fear and realizes God is doing something incredible in this moment. And that's what Luke is driving this narrative to, is again, the reaction. It's the end point. This group, it says in 16, fear seized them all and they glorified God. Why would they glorify God? Because they're correctly identifying who Jesus is. They're saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And that may not seem like a big deal, but when you have, there's been prophetic silence for several centuries in a row to say, there's a prophet on the scene is a big deal. This is exactly what Jesus was aiming for by pointing earlier to the Old Testament prophets of Elijah and Elisha. This is not a denigration of Jesus. This is right along with what Jesus intended to happen. God is uniquely using this person, Jesus, to do His will. He's like a prophet. And other people are saying, God has visited His people. Which is what Zechariah said. You remember in chapter 1, 78 and 79, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of, the de- in the shadow of death. It's happening. God is actually visiting His people in an undeniable way where a dead boy is having a conversation with his grieving mother. More of this interaction will happen in this section. And IDing Jesus as the coming Messiah is Luke's point. It's what he's after. So when we return to our question, how far does the ministry of Jesus go? To what extent? How deep does it go? To what extent is it able to transform? Jesus is able to resurrect the dead by His power. That's how deep it goes. (laughs) That's how extensive it is. It's hard to think of a more powerful proof of the ability to transform than to tell dead people to do things and have them obey you. 
So, what do these two scenes teach us? It's about the extension of Jesus' ministry that it extends to faraway outsiders. Its breadth is wide because it's by faith. And His ministry extends even into the grave. It's deeply transformative because He is powerful. The boundaries of the extent of Jesus' ministry are expanded by this text. Now, why does that matter? Why does the extent of Jesus' ministry matter to Luke's readers and to us as we sit here? That's a fair question. I'm glad you asked it. I want two ways why this matters. How it would have encouraged the people of Theophilus' world and also ours. One, the reach of Jesus' ministry matters to those who are far off. Notice that these counts are are less about the miracle and more about the people to whom the miracles are done. And there's lots of ideas about who's near to God, right? And who's far off. And despite that Jewish group that talked to Jesus about, you know, the centurion deserving it, the centurion's humble faith admits that he is far off. And yet, as a far-off person, he stands out as the shining example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What an unexpected template. Think about how the people listening to Luke's Gospel read would have responded to this. How many Gentiles would have been encouraged to hear that Jesus marveled at the faith of a pagan and said, you know what? I haven't found this anywhere inside of Israel. How many who felt disqualified as outsiders from Judaism were encouraged to hear that Jesus reaches anyone who exhibits genuine faith? How many of Luke's readers who had never seen Jesus, many of them, never in person, would be encouraged to see that Jesus marvels at the faith of a person who never met Him? That Jesus' power was displayed even at a distance, which is obviously what Luke's readers would have felt. The woman, the, the widow, plays, has the same effect, I think, on the readers because people would have thought her circumstances showed that God was angry at her or, or didn't show her favor for some reason because of all these bad things that were happening to her. But here this woman who is in these terrible situations, who is in dire need, notice the, the attention that the Lord demonstrates towards her. He doesn't ignore her. He doesn't overlook her like everyone eventually would in the town. He has compassion. He has mercy. She is his priority. So both the centurion and the widow demonstrate that Jesus is able and willing to reach into unexpected places and find people there. Whether it's the Gentile world or the world of the downtrodden, Jesus' ministry reaches far. And so our question for us is how far does the ministry of Jesus reach in our minds and hearts? Is it really anyone, anywhere? Who do we secretly consider beyond the reach of Jesus? The person you're at odds with, who's spoken poorly of you, who is your stated enemy? Is it a certain group of people who you've written off? Is it someone near to you who is so hard to the gospel you can't even imagine what genuine repentance looks like? 
Is it yourself? Who do we consider beyond the reach of Jesus? No one expected a persecutor to become an apostle or a centurion to be the model of faith. You think, how in the world does this work? How does Jesus pick and choose? This just kind of seems random. But it's not, right? How can Jesus extend His reach this far? It's because it's by faith that we come to Him. That's how the Gospel can cross cultural boundaries and linguistic borders. Jesus rescues people from different backgrounds by faith. And this is how the Gospel is accessible to all people all over the world, right? You don't have to have a Jewish background. You don't have to grow up in the church. You don't have to be a Democrat or a Republican. You don't have to know certain words. You don't have to know the lingo. You have to have saving faith. That's it. You have to confess that you are a sinner and trust that Jesus' life and death and resurrection is sufficient to make you a child of His, that He will make you into His likeness. That's it. And if that's it, that means the Gospel is accessible to any and all. It's not, no one is beyond the reach of the gospel for that reason. Saving faith is not generic. It's very specific. It's trusting what's trustworthy. There are lots of examples of misplaced faith and kind of a generic idea that faith itself is good. It's not if it's in the wrong thing. The substance of Christian faith is the person of Jesus. And the biggest hurdle to accessing the gospel It's not a cultural boundary. It's not a list of religious activities. It's pride. And that's what's so remarkable about this soldier. That he recognized Jesus' authority, that he fully trusted him to do what only he could do, sight unseen and from a distance. And this is exactly the position that we find ourselves today. Sight unseen and at a distance and yet... The reach of Jesus is incredible. How does that get us thinking differently about the people around us, about ourselves, about the power of the gospel to save? This is what Luke, I think, is intending to stir in us. So number one, the reach of Jesus' ministry matters to those who are far off. Number two, the depth of Jesus' ministry matters to those in need of God's transforming power. We shouldn't only ask, who can Jesus reach, but what does he do with the people he does reach? How substantially is he able to transform them? What is he capable of? And the power of Jesus in this text is incredible. He heals a servant on the brink of death. He brings a dead man back to life. He says, live, and the dead man lives. And no one else does this kind of thing. I would bet funeral homes do not have a policy that says if you resurrect, you can get your money back, right? This is out of the ordinary. This is not the way life normally goes. And the resurrection itself, the New Testament writers say, is is a doctrine and a belief that's the foundation of so many different elements of the Christian life. For those especially who are seeking transformation, the gospel or the New Testament writers point to the resurrection like the question, what is our hope for a transformed life tied to? Paul in Romans says the resurrection. Romans 6, 1 through 4, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. 
How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. How can we have hope to be transformed? Because Jesus was raised. How can we believe that nothing will separate us from the love of God? Paul says the resurrection. Romans 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So the foundation of the the idea that we will never be separated from Christ is that He is risen and ascended and is at the right hand. That's why we can be assured that we will not be separated from the love of God. And the reasoning is pretty straightforward. It's simple enough for us to understand, right? If someone can raise people from the dead, it makes sense that they'd be able to transform other aspects of our life, right? When you display that kind of power, it adds up. So your attitude or your habitual sin or your strained marriage or your failing body or your hunger for spiritual maturity or your desire to be used in meaningful ministry, all these things are possible because Jesus rose. And there's power. Imagine if we began our prayers to Him by saying, giver of resurrection and life. Then we pray. This ups the, the bar for expectation that we can have. It's, it's incredible that Jesus can give someone an earthly life back. It's even more impressive that he predicted his own resurrection and rose. But the real kicker in this scene is that this widow's son is the certain future for all who follow Jesus Christ. This current exception will be the future rule. All disciples of Jesus will experience the power of his resurrection. So the hope of our transformed body is tied to the resurrection. Paul says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. That means the resurrection is not only meant to instill confidence in us that God can transform us in this life, but that He will in eternal life forever. Jesus promises this because He's compassionate. He saw the widow in distress and He moved towards her. He hears the groaning of all of creation in Romans 8. Groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul says, and not only the creatures, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And Jesus hears those groans and reaches into those graves and resurrects the dead by his power. So the power of Jesus' ministry matters to those who need God's transforming power. So, I need to be done. The question is, How does the ministry of Jesus reach? How far? It reaches outsiders who are far away by faith. It reaches into the grave and resurrection by His power. 
How does the extent of Jesus' reach change your perspective this morning? How do the boundaries of your idea of what Jesus can do need to expand and grow? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for demonstrating Your compassion and power. For holding up the centurion as an example of faith that we too might know that we have access not by our pedigree or by our culture or by our geography, but by faith. Thank You that the extent of Your ministry is broad and wide and deep. And I pray, God, that You would avail us of a bigger view of what You are capable of doing. That happens by faith. It happens by the prompting of Your Spirit. But God, I pray that our understanding of Your capability on paper would translate increasingly into our life in day-to-day situations that we might taste and see your power and your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.